I've read recently that there are now 3,000 books published every single day throughout our world. Can you imagine that? The number of text messages, I've also learned, sent every single day now exceeds the total population of the world. It's amazing. And my daughter sends half of those, by the way, but uh, I'm sure you involved. Technical knowledge, which was doubling every five years since 1983, is now doubling every 72 hours. Some of the highest paying jobs in the world today did not exist in the year 2000. I've learned that if you happen to read the New York Times newspaper for one week, seven days in a row, you're going to be exposed to more information than the average person living in the 1800s came across in their entire lifetime. We're literally inundated with information. And the ability to communicate with one another is greater than ever. Thanks to the World Wide Web, you have the explosion now of online advertising and online business and online commerce, online shopping, online dating, online research, online education. In fact, I read an education journal last month and learned that the fastest growing segment of education is now online. I'm frankly aware of the dangers of all of these new methods and means, but I'm also very excited about what the Lord can do through this as the gospel finds new avenues and new ways. For instance, this sermon is being recorded through this microphone to a computer where it is being recorded in digital form. It'll be edited digitally. It'll be produced into a broadcast. It'll be, a, it'll be emailed to some kind of internet holding site somewhere. It'll be accessed by radio stations who will go out there and grab it, unload it, and play it through their transmitters and radio stations then around the world. Now, I don't understand anything I just said. I, I just was told that that's how it, it happens. In fact, I don't even know how to podcast yet. Does anybody here, you're, you're with me still in the old days? I mean... Look at all of, all of us technically illiterate, happy people. <laughs> I, I understand now, and I'm not sure what it means, but 60,000 times a month a sermon from our website will be podcast to people living on average 30 in 35 different countries in one month's time. The potential for the gospel is wonderful, isn't it? And that's only in English. I, I read... The other day about the buying frenzy of handheld mobile devices that allow you now to access the internet while you're on the go. The iPhone, you know, the less reliable Blackberry, whatever you happen to use, you can now get access to the web. In fact, I read recently that these handheld devices are expected to outnumber personal computers by the end of this year. The truth is we are literally swimming in a sea of information. And therein lies much of the danger. Our generation has come to prefer sound bites and video clips, right? Uh, the typical television show I've read never focuses on one scene more than seven to eight seconds. We live in a world where we are bombarded with quick messages. 180 uh, uh, letters or less, from what I understand. Uh, and, and all of that has an impact on us. In fact, 
through all of that, we, we can be, what we see and what we hear, we, we can be moved, but we can remain unchanged, can't we? See, there's a vast difference between information and transformation. 3,000 books published every day can inform you, encourage you, inspire you, maybe mislead you. But there is only one book that can transform you, and it's this one. Writing to his spiritual son of the faith, the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, saying, Now, Timothy, from childhood you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Other sources of information can entertain us. This book alone can awaken us. Paul went on to tell Timothy that these writings are inspired by God. Literally, they're the breath of God. They're God-breathed, and they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that is the believer, can be thoroughly equipped, totally enabled, equipped, stocked for every good work. The Bible is profitable for teaching. That tells you what to believe. It's profitable for reproof. That tells you where you're wrong. It's profitable for correction. That tells you where you're right. Literally means to stand you up on your feet. It's profitable for training in righteousness. That is, it tells you how to do what is right. I love the way Warren Wearsby, the former pastor of Moody Church, outlined this text when he wrote, the Bible is profitable for doctrine that tells you what's right, for reproof that tells you what's not right, for correction that tells you how to get right, and for training in righteousness that tells you how to stay right. No wonder Paul told Timothy to train himself in the Word for the purpose of godliness, to train it means to exercise. In fact, the word gymnazo gives us our word gymnasium. Go into the word and work up a, a sweat, which gives an entirely different image then to the average believer who would rather hear from God in a text message. Give it to me quickly. The average Christian's idea of devotions is to open the Bible and say, okay, Lord, give me a verse for today something really catchy, something with a little zing to it, speak to me, make it obvious, and by the way, you got five minutes or less. One author said, take time to be holy has been revised in our generation to how to get holy in a hurry. But the Bible isn't interested in hurrying. It doesn't work the same way as instant messaging. It intends to transform us by the renewing of our mind, literally. It intends by the Spirit of God through its truth to change the way we think, which changes the way we live. And if we're going to grow up in the faith, as James is very passionate about, there are a number of things we need to get right. And so far, not surprisingly, James has dealt with some pretty major issues that these Jews, these Jewish believers would be struggling with. Uh, and, he, and he deals with them. Here's how you think. Here's how to reform your thinking toward or in the midst of difficult trials. And then he moves on. Here's how to reform your thinking. Let me challenge the way you think, he says, as you respond to daily temptations. And now he's going to challenge us in how we think about and how we approach divine truth. So he takes us from trials to temptations 
And now he deals with how to approach the Word of God, which is divine truth. If you have your Bible with you, chapter 1 of James is where we find ourselves again and verse 19. James says, this you know, my beloved brethren. Now we need to stop for just a, just a minute. You can understand this as another imperative from James. He's effectively saying, you need to know this. This is something you need to get right. And so whenever anybody starts out by saying that, you, you perk up a little bit, don't you? James says, you've got to know this. Exclamation point. Get this right. Why? Because the average reader of, 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 of this might just kind of skip over what's going to come next because that's how we're used to reading. Uh, even when we're alerted. Maybe, like me, you do that update on your computer it comes over online, and uh, you're going to update whatever that program is that you have. And, and as it updates it, it eventually finishes. But before you can finish it, it, it gives you this contract you've got to read. It's page after page after page after page after page of legalese. I, just this last week, I was doing this. Had to get the update page. So I just keep my finger on the down arrow, and I'm just, it's just skimming it, skimming it, skimming it, skimming it. Yeah, there are words, blue, white background, there are sentences, I'm sure, periods, but just skim, 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 and get down to where I can check, and I did. I agree. Now, I don't know. I might have signed up for four years in the Navy, for all I know. (laughs) James is saying now, be alerted. This is something you've got to know. Don't skim it. You're going to need this. Now, what James will do, and for the sake of an outline, he's going to give us five ways to approach divine truth. There are five imperatives. This is how you approach God's Word for maximum spiritual maturity, is the idea. First of all, come with your ears open. You notice that? This you need to know, or get this right, my beloved brethren. Everyone must be quick to hear. Now, many readers, including myself, until I started digging a little bit, take this verse, pull it out of context, which is the temptation, turn it into a general statement. This is a wise statement from God. You need to be quick to hear. Well, that makes sense. There are a lot of verses that say that kind of thing. And we miss the context. That's not exactly what he's saying here. Don't go home and say to your spouse, do I have a theme verse for your life? (laughs) Stephen preached on it. This is the key verse for our marriage. You need to be quick to listen. Well, you know, there are other verses you can give your husband about that, but that isn't what he's talking about here. He's talking about being quick to listen to the Word of God. You see, the context, verse 18, talks about the Word, which is able to give us spiritual life. You go beyond this text, he's going to talk about how to receive the implanted Word. And then a little later on, he's going to talk about doing the Word. This is all related to responding to the Word of God, which acts as a tutor. Listen to the tutor of divine truth. You're facing difficult trials. You're facing dangerous temptations. The point he's making is, who are you listening to? Maybe the reason we aren't passing the test or overcoming the temptation is because God's word is the last place we go. Couldn't get what I wanted out of my friends, out of the leaders. Couldn't get what I really wanted to hear. And, and, and well, I guess I'll go to the word of God. So you need to understand that James is commanding them and us to literally listen to the words of God. Now, if we understand the the date of this epistle as being early, and we expand the context just a little bit, 
It means the New Testament is not yet completed. These letters are circulating. They bear the stamp of divine authority. They're written by an apostle. They, they agree in content. They glorify God. They agree on the gospel and all these uh, tests. They resonate with the heart of those who are truly redeemed. And long before a council ever said, this is the list, the church had received these letters and had given them the stamp of this is the word or the words of God. And you need to understand in the first century, which, which was oral communication, a service could, could be nothing more than the reading of a letter. Hey, we just got a letter from James and the leading elder, whoever it might be. The service would be nothing more than that man standing up and reading the letter from James. The question would be, is the congregation ready to listen, including the one reading it? The early services included much public reading of Scripture. In fact, it would be the only Scripture they'd have access to unless they copied down their own little fragments. So when, when, when James says the believer should be quick to listen, he's referring to an attitude as a person listens to the truth of the Word. He's quick to listen, meaning he is eager to hear. And for our generation, perhaps like none other, listening is becoming an art of the past. One author wrote, the media saturation of our society has a dulling, deadening effect on us. We are bombarded with visual stimulation, which conditions and diminishes our ability to listen. Western society today has become an eye-oriented rather than an ear-orientated culture. And as this tendency to depend upon the eye has grown, our ability to listen has atrophied from disuse. That's true, isn't it? I mean, our culture will elect someone to an office locally, nationally, not because of what they are saying, but because we like the way they're saying it. It's visual rather than content-oriented. Now, we do have a challenge with that, certainly, as our Western culture digresses. But the truth is, the first century had the problem too. James is referring to something that's as old as the human heart. We're hearing, but we're not really listening. You ever had that conversation? Mm-hmm, yes, right, yeah, that's what you said, right? Yeah, I got it, got it. Yes, ma'am. I mean, uh, yes, got it, right. You ever had that? And what did that person just say? You have no idea. But if it's important, maybe they'll repeat it when you need it. You see, remember the Lord oftentimes would stop and ask his audience of Pharisees and the religious leaders, and he would say to them, have you never heard? Have you never read well, the answer to that question was, yes, they had heard, but they weren't listening. The problem wasn't that they were hard of hearing. Their problem was that they were hard of listening. To whatever that form of communication is, it is blunted by the person really never focusing. Hebrews 5.11 calls it dull of hearing. And we have the same problem. You get on that airplane and you listen to that flight attendant as she goes over the directions of how to snap together the seat belt. And if there's a change in pressure, the little thing will come down and you strap it on, you breathe. And if you crash, if you're still living, you take the cushion and you float on it. And she is the most ignored person on that plane, is she not? 
And she talks about the little plastic card with pictures on it that's in the back of the seat in front of you. And, and you don't even pull it out and look at it. You just And I'm not paying her any attention either. And actually, I feel a little sorry for her. She's got a job where she has to stand up in front of people who aren't listening to a word she's saying. <clears throat> I get paid to do that too. See, but you let that plane hit some turbulence and where's that card? Let me look at the pictures. We've got the seat cushion here and hadn't fallen down yet, but let's see, how, what did she, because we hit some turbulence, all of a sudden we need to know. James is talking to people in the middle of turbulence. And he effectively is saying to us, you're about to experience it because, listen, a, a smooth flight through life is a myth. So if you don't have it now, you're going to experience turbulence. So get this right. Be ready. Listen. Not just here. Be quick. Have your ears open. If you want to grow up, don't be eager, by the way, to listen to everybody else. First and foremost, listen to your tutor, the Word of God, which is able to equip you for every aspect of life. Second of all, keep your mouth closed. He says in verse 19, you need to know this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak. Now, the adjectives quick and slow do not describe our action, they describe our attitude. And in this context, in the reference to being slow to speak means that you are slow to talk back to the Word. That's the context. That's the idea. We don't like what God is saying. We don't like what we're hearing. We don't like what we're reading. So we're going to talk back to God. That's the idea here. Now, we might not talk out loud, but in our hearts, Lord, I don't like that. Lord, I don't agree with that. Lord, I'm not sure you know what's happening here. You don't know the circumstances, or surely you can't mean that verse for me. And again, to broaden the context a little bit, imagine in the first century where the church services were informal. Often the listeners would speak up, ask questions, maybe even debate, perhaps even argue with the preacher-teacher. This seems to be exactly what happened to Paul in Ephesus when he told Timothy Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord repay him according to his deeds. What did he do, Paul? He vigorously opposed my teaching. He literally actively opposed, and it's probably a reference to interrupting him while he's teaching the words of God. 2 Timothy 4.15 you can imagine Paul preaching the truth and this man named Alexander standing up and verbally opposing him. Now, while you may not do that here today while I'm preaching, and I appreciate that, you might be doing that in your heart because God's words are inconvenient. They are uncomfortable. They're demanding. We don't like what James said about trials. What do you mean I have to choose my responses? I don't get to choose my crosses. I don't like that. What do you mean I'm supposed to, to handle temptation with, with the attitude that he delivers uh, to us? What, what, what do you mean that this is what I'm supposed to do with it? How I'm supposed to handle it? How I'm supposed to flee from it? You might be sitting down on the outside, but you're standing up. On the inside, you're talking back to the Word of God 
in your heart. You know, one of the marks of, of immaturity is the inability to keep from talking, right? In fact, early on in life, that's a lot of the training that you got. And the truth is, it really doesn't matter how old you get. He's writing to mature believers, here older believers, adults, certainly every age. But, but you'd think that at a certain point in time, this wouldn't be a problem. Quick to hear, slow to speak. Yeah, I got that. I've nailed that. No, we have trouble with it. And we started having trouble very, very early on. I don't know if they still do it today, but when I was in elementary school, we had a report card with two sides to it folded, name of the grade, name of the teacher. You opened it up. And on one side were the grades. And on the other side were comments from the teacher. Now, my parents, for some reason, didn't care as much about the grades as they did the comments. I could get a B plus in spelling. That was the one B. I, I, I love spelling, and I, I, I could get that. Um, I got a B plus. But if the teacher on the other side wrote, he has trouble staying in his seat. Uh, he's disruptive in class. He, he likes talking to his neighbor. I remember all those. My parents would ignore the B+. They'd ignore this side of the page and focus on this. They were, they were so twisted <laughs> in, in their thinking. They, they made me memorize that classic quote of Abraham Lincoln. Better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. You had to memorize that too, huh? <laughs> I hated that quote, actually. So it's a good one, isn't it? One of the marks of spiritual immaturity is the inability to keep from talking when we should be listening. And you never really grow out of the problem. The context here is that spiritual maturity is demonstrated and gained when instead of quickly talking back, we keep our mouths closed and our ears open. See, Job is a good illustration for us who was facing massive transformation because of massive trials and troubles. He was peerless among the men of the East. He was the wisest of them. He was the epitome of maturity, wasn't he? Then he was thrown into incredible turbulence where his world was turned upside down. His friends came along and talked to him and, and he would talk back to them and he basically had as his main premise or theme, I want God to show up because I want an explanation from God. I want sense made out of this. And God eventually shows up. You remember a chapter 40, and I love Job's response. He says, in, in even greater maturity, which he has now developed, I lay my hand upon my mouth. God, what can I say to you? James says, be still effectively. No, he's God. Don't talk back to your tutor. Keep listening. Keep your ears open, your mouth closed. The third way to gain the most from your tutor, the Word of God, is to keep your spirit teachable. He says, you need to get this, beloved brethren. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, in order to understand this, perhaps I could reverse it and show you the digression. It begins with not listening. You know, fingers in the ears, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, no, 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 and you start humming or whatever. And then maybe you hear a little bit, 
and you don't like what you hear, and that leads to the argument that effectively explodes in anger and disagreement, and that shuts down the process of maturing. The context, again, ladies and gentlemen, is anger with God because of what God is saying. The problem may be we weren't really listening in the first place. And then we got a little tidbit or two. We misunderstood it because we started talking too quickly. Life didn't get better. Trials kept coming. Temptations never slacked up. Finally, the lid comes off with, Lord, I want an explanation. What are you thinking? Is the basic idea. James goes on. He taps us on the shoulder in verse 20. He says, by the way, remember, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. In other words, anger with God does not bring about any better living or, or, or maturity with God or before God. It hijacks the process. When you're angry with God for the turbulence in your life, you're actually going in the opposite direction. And guess what? It's going to get worse. Because now you're not listening to Him. You're not relying on Him. When you don't give what you believe you deserve or want, you, you get angry with God, you accomplish nothing. In fact, you make it worse. James is saying basically anger with God won't help. It makes it worse. Let me ask you, has your child ever thrown a temper tantrum? That was a rhetorical question. Okay. It's bedtime and, and, and they didn't get the snack they wanted. And so they pitched a fit. Were you impressed did you stand there and go, wow, what depth of emotion? Look at the clarity of expression. Okay, you can have Dr. Pepper before you. That was great, son. Wow, tremendous. No, uh, I, don't, I don't think so. It just made it worse, didn't it? And my mother used to tell me, if you don't quit crying like that, I'll give you something to what? Again, we had the same mother. That's amazing. <laughs> I'll give you something to cry about. And we perpetuate that. We tell our kids that. That works. That's good. If you think you've got something to cry about, keep crying and we'll really show you something to cry about. <laughs> the truth is, temper tantrums accomplish nothing. They just bring you more trouble. So here's the progression in the wrong direction. You refuse to listen. You talk back to God's divinely inspired word. And then you get angry with God because he's telling you what you don't want and he's not coming through in your mind. And you do not fulfill the righteousness of God. That means you, you do not grow up. You remain immature. At that point, it's shut down. Now, don't forget he's writing to Christians, which I find very encouraging to remember, especially in the middle of this kind of lecture from James. Jewish Christians who've had their lives turned upside down. You remember? Verse 1, they're part of the diaspora. They are part of the dispersion, the dispersed, the disinherited, uh, the, the distant removed ones from their homeland. And everything James has said to them so far is very hard to hear. Very convicting. And I love the way he even begins it. If you look back at verse 19, he says, you need to know this. And he says, my beloved brethren, my dearly loved brethren. In other words, don't get mad at me. I love you. Uh, don't shoot the messenger. 
This is Paul's point to the Galatians. Have I become your enemy for telling you the truth? Galatians 4.16. James says, here's the truth. An angry spirit is not a teachable spirit. And that's why I outlined it that way, because that's the heart of it. We approach the tutor of divine truth with open ears, a closed mouth, a teachable spirit. Forth, we come to be tutored by the Word with clean hands. Look at verse 21. James writes, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. James is saying to them, Get rid of your filthiness. Get rid of your wickedness. Who's he writing? He's writing Christians. He uses a word that, that, that refers to taking off putrid, tattered, dirty clothing. Paul uses the same expression to the Ephesians he wrote in, in reference to your former manner of life. Lay aside the old self, literally take it off. And that's a daily habit and activity, a discipline, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. That you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You put on the new self which is in God, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You encounter the truth. You decide whether or not you're going to put it on. And you can't put it on until you've taken the other clothing off. That's the idea. To the Colossians he wrote, put them all off. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, Lying. I mean, they're specific here. Have you ever noticed that's how the Bible treats sin? The Bible does not call sin a wrong choice. It doesn't, it is, but that isn't what the Bible calls it. It doesn't call sin a moment of weakness. It doesn't call sin an unfortunate decision. They call it what it is. And James says, here's, what I, here's, here's how I'm going to categorize it. Filthiness. The word for filthiness is a word used of moral defilement. It's used also of dirty clothing, literal dirty clothing. That's why you get the analogy or the metaphor here. Put aside, take off dirty things that are morally defiling. Maybe you walked in here this morning and there's a battle going on in your heart and life as a believer because there's something morally defiling that you, instead of fleeing from, taking off, leaving, you are pulling into your life. The word he uses, it's interesting, the root word for filthiness was used by the Greeks to refer to wax in ears. Again, which fits the context perfectly of this idea of listening to the Word of God. Sin in our lives, which we refuse to put off, acts like wax in our ears, preventing the Word of Truth from preventing, uh, preventing the Word of Truth from getting in and down, as it were, into our hearts. Which is another way of saying then that confessing sin. Forsaking sin is, is like cleaning out your ears daily so that you can hear the Word of God, so it can do what it needs to do. Now, the word James uses for wickedness in this text, he says, put aside all filthiness and wickedness. It's a word that denotes moral evil, corruption, 
However, the difference is this kind of corruption may never be expressed. In other words, it may be hidden. It may be something you're just thinking about. It may be something you're sinning within your heart to think or to plan. It's one of those hidden sins that only the Lord and you are aware of. Now, the words in verse 21 translated, and all that remain of wickedness, put that off, means to deal with the abundance. That doesn't mean you're going to get rid of at all. It's not the idea here. It, it doesn't mean you're going to achieve perfection. This is a battle through life. He's writing believers to get involved in doing this. It does mean that you are willing to deal with it all. That's the idea. You're, you're, you're dealing with everything. So you're not compartmentalizing sin. You're not saying, I'm going to deal with those, but I'm going to keep this one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get involved with these, but I've put off those. He's saying you will deal with all of it. One of the marks of maturing in the Lord is that you're growing more and more troubled over sins that may have never bothered you before. Spiritual maturity means you're growing more and more intolerant. And the list of sins that bother you are not growing Shorter, but longer. You see, this one down here never bothered you, but as you grow in Christ, that really bothers you now. Just one idle word. Just one wasted hour. The list gets longer. And one of the marks of maturing, frankly, and I had, I had a, a gentleman come to me who's been a believer uh, not very long. He came to me a couple of weeks ago. He says, you know, these sins, I'm struggling with them. And in fact, there they're, they're are more in my life than I ever thought I, I, I knew I had problems with. And I said, that's wonderful news. You're feeling this sense of filthiness and wickedness, and you are dealing with it. I read of an incident in India, perhaps much like the setting in the first century. An unbelieving skeptic was listening to an evangelist preach about the burden of sin. And he interrupted the evangelist and sarcastically said, I feel no burden of sin. Tell me, how heavy is it? 80 pounds? 50 pounds? 10 pounds? The evangelist answered with his own question. He said, tell me, if you laid 100 pounds on a corpse, would it feel the load? He said, the spirit is dead, which feels no load of sin. Now, James has every reason to believe these dispersed Jewish Christians are struggling with their propensity. We've learned they're bent to sin. And they would feel the slightest sin as they grew in Christ. But he's speaking with the firmness of the divine tutor, which says, deal with it. Clean, clean up your act. Clean house. Make no excuse for sin. Call it what it is. This is an imperative. This is an exclamation point. We are to put off filthiness and wickedness as we come before the divine tutor in order to grow up. And if we say, you know what, I'm going to leave that on, maturity stops at that point. God requires that we clean house. The Greek expositor, Spiro Zodiades, in his word studies through the book of James, which have been interesting to read along in my study, tells about going to a prayer meeting in his little church. 
And every time he'd go, this one gentleman prayed the same prayer, same prayer request, same prayer. He was dealing with a particular sin or a group of sins, and he would name them. And then in his prayer, he'd always end by saying, Oh, Lord, the cobwebs have come between you and me. Please clear them up and away. Every week, he'd, he'd confess the same sins. He'd get to that same part, and he'd say before he ended, Lord, please clear away the cobwebs that have come between you and me. And finally, an older Christian prayed right afterwards, and Lord, would you have him kill the spider? <laughs> it's pretty good, isn't it? There are certain things which God does not choose to do for us. We are to exercise every bit of our will and our determination, and we find then the cooperating power of the Spirit of God, but we can't say, I'm going to get out of bed and read the Bible if God will get me out of bed. You'll sleep through. You know, I'm going to memorize that verse as soon as God makes me want to. Now, there is the accompanying Spirit power that enables us to perform His will, but He happens to know what our will is. And he happens to know what we really don't care to do. And here in this context, as we come to the Word of God, God is requiring that we literally clean house. We deal with sin. I had a gentleman come to me just in this past month telling me of things he's doing to clean up. He's talking about the radical changes in his life and the stuff he's literally throwing away, the things he's getting rid of, the patterns in his life that he's changing. And he's speaking with this glow in his face and in his eyes of great liberation and freedom. The hard thing is the right path. Especially in this generation. I learned in my research that more than 7 million people every year go online to Merriam-Webster's online dictionary. I've been there myself. Very convenient. One of the top ten words looked up, I learned, in the course of a year, top ten, is the word integrity. One author commenting on this interesting search said, and I quote, perhaps integrity is becoming so scarce its definition is now unfamiliar. What a benefit to the church a clean Christian is to the world around us, which is in desperate need of a living demonstration of integrity. The need has never been more ripe for someone that James describes here, someone with clean hands, a passion that is for purity, someone who demonstrates integrity. That's how you approach the Word of God, with that kind of passion in order to maximize spiritual growth. There's one more way to hear from God's Word. You come with open ears, a closed mouth, teachable spirit, clean hands, and finally, a humble heart. Look back at verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted. Receive the word implanted. How do you receive something that's already implanted? Seems to be a contradiction or some form of paradox. How do you receive something that's already in you? The planting of the seed, and he's writing to believers, has already taken place. The living word of truth he, he uses in this analogy, it's like a seed which has been buried in the soil of your heart. Now, he says, receive it. What does he mean? He means welcome it. 
Put out the welcome mat for the word. Nurture it. Water it. Weed around it to give it room to grow. And James says, by the way, at the end of that verse, he says, it's able to save your souls. You could render that save rescue. James is not talking to people who need to be saved. He's talking to people who are saved. He's not talking about being rescued for heaven in this context. He's talking about being rescued through life. You want to be rescued? You want to be saved misery and guilt and sorrow and consequences because of rebellion and disobedience? Welcome into your life the tutor of God's word. Put out the welcome mat for the word. And what does it take to put out the welcome mat? He says it takes an attitude of humility. This is the person who comes to the Word and says, I don't know nearly enough. I need to hear from God's Spirit. I need to speak less. I need to listen better. Lord, I'm, I'm still. I'm here. I'm ready. My life is an open book to your inspired book. That person is ready to grow a little more. See, friends, James wants us, whenever troubled, to go to this book for passages of thanksgiving and praise. When in despair, to dig here for words of comfort, encouragement, and strength. In times of confusion, to go to this book to search for wisdom and direction. When tempted, to search this book for God's standards of purity and righteousness for the strength to resist as your will actively resists. You find strength here in the Word of God whose spirit resists right along with you. The Word becomes a source of deliverance. It becomes our most welcome friend. Do you have a friend here? You know, you talk to friends. Is this under the seat of your car? Does it go in the back window? Does it go in the cupboard, closet? Or do you have a Bible that's yours? I bought this one in 2008. And it's my intention to mark it up as much as I can before the spine breaks. I remember reading somewhere, I don't know who said it, but a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. So you really do want to wear the gilded edges off that are right now shiny. Make it your friend because it ultimately leads you into intimate, loving communion with your heavenly Father who is the author of this word. So like Samuel, as he was beginning to mature, we learned to say with him, speak, Lord, for your servant, your slave, is listening ready to hear. How do you know you are? How do you know you'll maximize maturity through time and the Word? Your heart is humbled. Your hands are cleaned with fresh forgiveness. Your spirit is teachable. Your mouth is closed. And your ears are open. 
And with those five imperatives, you are ready for another session with your divinely inspired tutor who will teach you God's unfailing truth. Would you stand with me? Perhaps, friend, with your heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment, the Spirit of God has provoked in your heart and mind something, some area, some action, some decision, some act of the will. Perhaps you're, you're here and you need to lace up your shoes and run from whatever it is that God's brought to your mind. Maybe there's a piece of clothing that needs to be taken off and a, another piece of clothing that adorns, as it were, the doctrine of God as believers obeying that put on. I can't even begin to guess what God may be saying in your heart, but whatever it is, would you put an exclamation point there, not a, not a comma, don't leave with an ellipses, deal with it. Right where you stand, let, let this moment be that moment when you take a stand you're going to need to make it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. But you need to make it. You need to make it today. Your son or daughter of the Lord, in order to maximize maturity, one of these five things needs to be a part of your life. In fact, all of them do, but maybe God's Spirit has challenged you with one. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ personally. I'm glad you've come. If we can help you, we'll be here at the front after this service to take the Word of God, show you how you can come to know the author of this book personally, or make an appointment to talk with you further, or perhaps pray with anyone who would like prayer. We're available. If you're visiting, I'd love to meet you. We have information for you about this assembly. Should God be moving in your heart to, to come and become a part of this? Father, thank you that you have not left us alone that you have not simply left us with intangibles, a spirit that we cannot see, a God that we pray to who is invisible. You have given us an objective record of inspired words. We hold it in our hand. Cause us to cherish it even more. We are inundated with information and communication. There's so much stuff. Teach us to listen so that ultimately our world will have a demonstration of men and women, boys and girls, who walk and live with integrity, giving them a living definition of something our world has lost, so that ultimately they will see our good works, our lifestyle, and glorify you, our Father, who is in heaven. 